I'm going to ask you to open your scriptures to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's where we're going to begin. And I have an offer to our young children in here. If you were at our family meeting last week, you know that uh, the white mints have been very popular with some of our children, with a lot of our children. And uh, I'm going to ask you to take sermon notes today, and I will reward you with, I will unhide the white mints, okay? Uh, you need to get eight out of the ten points. It's going to be really clear, and it's got to be in your handwriting, your handwriting, not your parents, okay? Um, Because we're going to talk about ten reasons why we can give thanks in all circumstances. And if you're five here this morning, or eight, or twelve, these are still ten reasons why you can give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 16. We're going to read three verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Common question, what is God's will? What is God's will for my life? In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, This is God's will, even that you abstain from certain things. Now he's following through with this is God's will that you rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. But there are a few, if you mean just this short little passage, there are a few problematic words in this text. Can you find them? It's the word always and without ceasing and all. You know, if it said sometimes, often, and mostly, we could work with that, right? But it doesn't leave you any wiggle room. In chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, the Apostle Paul turns from discussing attitudes and actions towards individuals, the Thessalonian community, now to attitudes and actions towards God. And it's And it's very conclusive what those are. Rejoice. How often? Always. Pray. How? Without ceasing. And giving thanks in what circumstances? All. You know that frustration and anger with God will darken your soul. And it will spread like a cancer. That kind of posture towards God, long term, will dim the light of God's presence and eclipse any kind of joy you might have in your heart. So these are commands. These aren't suggestions. These are directives. To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. These spell out what God's will in Christ Jesus for you and me is. Let's explain this really quick before we go back to Genesis. Uh, first, with, the re- with regard to the command to rejoice always, the emphasis is not so much on the emotion of joy as it is the action of rejoicing. There's always a reason we can rejoice even if our heart isn't joyful. This isn't trying to put forward some fake 
artificial emotion in your heart that doesn't exist. But as, as you live biblically and Godward, you can rejoice always. It is an action. It is an attitude. Because we, we can do this because our rejoicing find its, finds its basis where? In the character and the works of who? God. If you are fixated on the character and the works of people, you will not rejoice always. So that's why the next command says what? Pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean you're always going around and actually like our most the most common understanding of prayer where you're like, hold on, I'm praying. You can you don't talk to me. And then, you know, when I step down from preaching, no, I, I can't talk, I'm praying. That's not what that means. It means you are constantly in the position, a heart attitude to communicate with God. So when you are communicating with God, you are rejoicing in God, you are talking to God, and a temptation comes in, and you actually, your mind actually starts to consider that temptation. You are no longer what? You're no longer communicating with God. If you're communicating with God in the light of His presence and that kind of weasels its way in and you cast your mind on that temptation, you have gone from vertical to horizontal. Rejoice always in the character and the works of God and pray without ceasing. It's what Colossians says. We are to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. As soon as we set our affections here, on this, even if you set your affections on this church, you will be disappointed. But as we set our affections on things above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God, then we can rejoice always and pray without ceasing. The third one is where we're going to be launching back into Genesis 37 on, and that is giving thanks. What does it say? Because there's another little word. We get, we get caught up on always and without ceasing, and all. But I want us to focus on a very helpful word here. It says what? Giving thanks in. Not for. We're not being directed to, to give thanks for a very real evil that touches our life. Do you understand that? We are giving thanks in that situation because of what God is doing. We are not giving thanks for that situation, that would be sordid. That would be a little twisted if I'm actually now going around thanking God for the evil that touches the world today. But in it, I can do that because I understand that a sovereign God is over all things. Our faith is placed in an object, not a circumstance. And the object is God. So there's a very close association between these three things. Between knowing God, trusting God, and thanking God. And you'll notice that people don't thank God typically because they don't know Him. They don't trust Him. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, makes a helpful distinction between knowing God and knowing about God. Listen to what he says. One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. I am sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find ourselves... A deep, we find in ourselves a deep interest in theology. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. We dip into Christian history and study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around in the scriptures. Others appreciate our interest in these things, and we find ourselves asked to give our opinion in public on this or that Christian question. 
to lead study groups. Our friends tell us how much they value our contribution, and this spurs us to further explorations of God's truth so that we may be equal to the demands made upon us. All very fine, listen to what he says, yet interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing Him. And that distinction shows up most during trials, interpersonal conflict, and as we walk in a sin-sick, broken world. It shows up that we may know a lot about God, we may know what reference to go to, but that we hardly know God on an experiential level at all. That's why I've chosen the life of Joseph. Please turn back to Genesis chapter 37. From this, we're going to consider ten reasons why we can give thanks in all circumstances. Okay, really quick, just the framework of Genesis. Chapters 1 and 2, the creation of the world. That's the original state of God's creation, including humanity. This is a prerequisite for understanding redemptive history and what's ahead. You're not going to understand Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph until you understand God's original creation. And what's ahead is a new creation, a new humanity, and a new and better Garden of Eden. In chapters 3 to 5, you have the fall. That's the entrance of sin and its results. This provides the best and most accurate explanation for what is so wrong everywhere in the world. And even if the whole world disappeared and it was just you, it provides the best and most accurate explanation for what is wrong within your own heart and your own mind. That quickly moves from chapter 6 to 9, which is the flood. And that gives us an early display on God's judgment. Sin is not just this neutral thing that needs to sort of, you know, dissolve and move away. It actually has to be dealt with. We see an early display of that on the universal flood. This is man's desperate need for salvation and for a clear way of escape. Chapter 10, interestingly, follows, and it's the Tower of Babel. What we learn from that is the futility of human effort to reach God, to return to God. Redemption cannot be accomplished by man. Then all of a sudden there's a shift. It goes from these events of creation, fall, flood, tower, and there's a shift to people. And all of a sudden, right here in this first book called Beginnings, Genesis, you are now introduced to these patriarchs, these fathers. This is a divine calling of a family Nation, which was hinted at in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and now it's going to grow through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then the last 13 chapters of Genesis covers a life, the life of Joseph. This is the divine protection of God's plan. Actually, I want you to look at the very last verse of Genesis. The very last, if you think you've missed like one of the ten reasons you have not yet, I'll let you know when we get there. Look at the very last verse, because it's striking. In Genesis 1 and 2, there is life. The very last verse of this book, So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. You're still in the very first book of the Bible. 
You saw how God created. You saw what He created. You saw the beauty of the garden. And now you have Joseph who died. He's embalmed and he's put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's the end of the book. And we should be thinking, why death and not what? Life. Why a coffin and not paradise? Why North Africa and not Eden? And then what? I mean, if you move into the book of Exodus, which we're not going to do, what does Joseph's death set the stage for? There was a king who arose and did not know Joseph, and it launches into slavery, abuse, hardship. But see, this is, this is, the, this is an important lesson. You've got to keep reading. Because God's not done yet. God is at work in the ordinary moments of life. Keep trusting God. What's next? The signs and the wonders? The Passover? The exodus? The deliverance? But let's go look at Joseph's life. Go back to Genesis 37. I want you to look at verse 2. We're not going to read large portions of the chapter. There's no way we will, we will get through the story. This is not one of the ten points either, but I, I want to. This is the big idea of Genesis 37, uh, and it's this: God is at work in the messy details of life. Look at verse two. Joseph, being how old? Seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Look at what the text says. He was a what? He was a boy. That is our introduction to the context of Joseph. He's a 17-year-old boy. Verse 2, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So the plot of this thing thickens. Look at verse 3. The father, Jacob's obvious favoritism of this particular son led to this. In a sense, Joseph was set up by how his father interacted with him as opposed to all the other sons. Look at verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob... They're not a nation yet, so this is referring to a person. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Do you think that would create problems? And yes, it does. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Here's the first lesson. Lesson one. Our sovereign God is not bound by parental favoritism and failures. Our sovereign God is not bound by parental favoritism and failures. Do you know that is a reason that we can give thanks in all circumstances? God is not bound by an absentee father. God is not bound by a verbally abusive mother. God is not bound by needing a perfect environment. Adam and Eve had that, and they still sinned and transgressed. They had the perfect father, and they still sinned and transgressed. Here you have Jacob, Israel, probably otherwise a decent father, one of the patriarchs, and he sets Joseph up for the events that are about to unfold. And you know, parents, we need to be encouraged by this too. God is not dependent upon your perfect parenting, your perfect environment, your absolute perfect choices. How many, how many parents exist today that don't look back, even over just a couple years of parenting, 
and say, oh, if I could just do a few things differently. The good news is God is not bound by your failures, your imperfections, your sins, your idols. God is above all that. It doesn't excuse them, and it doesn't mean there's no need for a transformative change, but the fact is a sovereign God is not bound or enslaved to those things. That's good news. The coat Jacob gave Joseph, not only was it beautiful and did it stand out among the others, but it was suited for an overseer rather than a laborer. Here's the youngest son being given the position, seemingly without much experience, of being an overseer. And then Jacob says, go out and check on your brothers. So now he is dressed like an overseer over his older brothers and he is functioning like an overseer. Look at, look at verse 4. Just so you can see the response. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers... You see, children, children are discerning. Children feel the hurt of favoritism. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. You know, if we're, if we're honest with the text, I actually think that, that most of us in here, the majority of us, would relate with Joseph's older brothers right now more than Joseph. Also interesting is the fact that the tension point is what? It's not the coat. It may not even be the functioning of oversight. What is it? When his brothers saw that their father what? Loved him. More. Dads. What power and influence you wield with your affections. At this point, Joseph dreams two dreams, shares them with his brothers. We're not going to look at the dreams. But the result is they hated him even more. It says that in the text. His dad even questions. His dad rebukes him. But as a godly, as an imperfect godly patriarch, it says he kept those things in his heart. God's doing something here. I'm not sure what he's doing. That brings us to lesson two. You can put this in your own words. Every detail is under God's sovereign control and therefore used for his purposes. Do you believe that? Every detail is under God's sovereign control. And used for His purposes. And His purposes cannot be frustrated. They cannot be thwarted. They cannot be undone. The story continues to develop. There is Joseph, the overseer, placed in authority. Look at verse 13, Genesis chapter 37. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Of course, now... Jealousy and hate spiral downward towards murderous intentions. Verses 18 and 20. It says they conspired against him to kill him. By the way, this is, this is one of the lies of the devil. If we just remove the irritating person, then life will be well. You know there are people serving life sentences because they bought, they bought into that lie. If I just get rid of this person... They say, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And don't we do the same thing? I mean, we buy into it a little bit. 
We think if we just remove ourselves from a situation, maybe even a church, or we transition away to a different state, or we separate, or we leave, or we find something else, or we run someone out of our life, I mean, fill in the blank, that we actually think that's going to deal with the problem. This brings us to Lesson 2.5. You didn't see that coming. You don't have to write this one down. It's going to sound like Lesson 2. Every detail is under God's sovereign control and is therefore used for His purposes. And I say this carefully. Be discerning. Even the murderous intentions of others is used by a sovereign God to fulfill His plan. That brings us to our third point for giving thanks in, not for, but in all circumstances. Here's lesson three. God designed transitions, unexpected moves, abrupt turns, and life changes are all part of God's leading in your necessary journey. Okay, so young people, you can just say God leads in our journey. There are no surprises with God. As a 12-year-old boy and you move from a, a place and a home and friends that you love does not take God by surprise. Transitions, moves, abrupt turns, life changes are all part of God's leading in your necessary journey. Look at verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up. I mean, we're missing so much of the story, right? We're not even focusing on those things. Here he's betrayed. He's thrown into a pit. Reuben wants to come back, save him. Simeon, sort of a bloodlust brother, he wants to kill him. He's in the pit. The Midian traders passed, Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So, now I want you to look at verse 36, and I want you to apply this to your life. Meanwhile, right? These events are happening back at the farm. Meanwhile, life is still being lived. By the way, the, what's happening is the brothers go back. They take the coat that they know their father would recognize. They slaughter a goat. They dip it. They ask. This is cruel. Cruel treatment now of a father. Is this your son's coat? And Jacob concludes that he was killed by a fierce animal and he grieves. And he says that he will actually go down to the grave grieving. Meanwhile, okay, you've got to connect these ideas. You've got this very sad situation back at home. Meanwhile, God's sovereign plan is unfolding. Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I have, I have no idea what Joseph is feeling at this time. He's separated from everything he loves. He's been exchanged through several different foreigners' hands. He's in a country he's probably never been to. Here are some of the details at this point in his life. The messy stuff of life. Family friction. Sibling rivalry. Parental favoritism. Jealousy. Hatred. Lies. Clothing. Made-up stories. Foreign entities. Slavery. Sound familiar? Sound familiar when you realize what's touched our lives? Meanwhile, God's plan is unfolding. Meanwhile, a sovereign God is over all the details of your life. And as one man has said, God does not waste suffering. 
God is at work and leading not outside of the details, but in and through all the messy details of life. Hudson Taylor, who did not have an easy path, he wrote this, I am no longer anxious about anything. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. I am no longer anxious about anything as I realize this, for he, I know, is able to carry out his will, and his will is mine. It makes no matter where he places me or how, that is rather for him to consider than for me, for in the easiest position he must give me his grace, and in the most difficult, his grace is sufficient. So here's lesson four. We can give thanks to God in all circumstances because God is working in the messy details of life. He's not apart from it. He's not outside of it. He is in it. Which brings us to another point. God's plan is bigger than our failures. Just open up to Genesis 38. We're not really going to look at it much. But Genesis 38 seems like an interruption to the Joseph narrative. And it covers another brother. It covers Judah. This is a narrative about what took place back in Canaan during this time with Joseph's half-brother Judah. Verses 1 to 6, Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Verses 7 to 10 of this chapter, you see Judah's wicked sons. In verses 12 to 26, you see Judah's relationship with his daughter-in-law. Familiar story to some of us. The entire chapter in this redemptive history seems like a colossal shipwreck. I mean, if you, it, just, it feels like the ugly wart on the face of redemptive history. You've got Judah and he's messing up at every turn. Listen to what Revelation 5.5 5 says. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is not God at work in the messy details of life? It's out, of, it's, it's out from Judah's lineage that the Messiah, Deliverer, Savior will come. It may be the ugly wart on the face of redemptive history, but it is a necessary path through which Messiah will come. That's lesson five. God's plan is bigger than our failures. God's plan is bigger than Judah's evil. It doesn't mean there are no consequences for our choices, no pain. There is no complete like eraser or invisible ink to make that all go away. The stain lasts for now. But it does mean that God's plan is bigger than your individual failures. Here's lesson six. Probably the most familiar chapter for most of us is Genesis chapter 39. We're all familiar with Mrs. P, right? Potiphar's wife. And that's what goes down in Genesis chapter 39. And so here's, here's a point I want us to get. God's presence compels us in trials and temptation. Look at verse 2 of Genesis chapter 39. The Lord, I'm just going to read parts of that verse. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Verse 3, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 5, for Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he, Potiphar, had in house and field. 
How was Joseph able to resist the temptation of Potiphar's wife day after day after day? Let's, let's speak as a fool really quick. Hadn't God failed him? Didn't God turn his back on Joseph? Didn't God uproot Joseph from a loving family environment, from his father at least? Isn't this what the older brothers accused Jacob of being? Unfair and mean? Will Joseph now do that to God and say, God's already failed me. God's allowed me to be enslaved. God's pushed me into a foreign country. I didn't ask for this. I don't want to be here. Meanwhile, I'm being sold. Meanwhile, I'm incarcerated. Meanwhile, I'm treated unfairly. Why wouldn't I take advantage of this temptation? At what point does a person just walk away from God? Look at Joseph's response in verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness? He called sin what it is. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Think back to 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Keep a continuous awareness of God in all that you do. So that even if life seems like the floor just fell out and, and you are, you're the victim, and maybe you really are, it's just perceived, but everything's going wrong and everybody's against you, pray without ceasing. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Do you see the God awareness that Joseph has even after everything has gone wrong for him? We know the story. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, resulting in imprisonment. I love what Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says about Joseph. He says this, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. I mean, here, I mean Stephen just like went at real quick timeline. I mean, he was, he was delivered and sent to Egypt because of jealousy, and he's second in power of the kings of the world's superpower. I mean, that's, that's what God did sort of in a short narrative. Look at Genesis 39:21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Remember Psalm 136? 26 times. 26 repetitions. Oh, come on, we've already said this seven times. No, you need it. You need this 26 times. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Lesson six, God's presence compels us in trials and temptations. Chapter 40 to 41, very interesting read. We will not read it, but it's, it's the story of the cupbearer and the baker. King gets angry. God, God is using the negative emotions of an unbelieving ruler 
to bring about His will. Here's, here's, the, here's the next point. God keeps His promises and makes us fruitful in affliction. Genesis 40, verse 1. I just want you to look at the time. Sometime after this. Think about all the little minutes and moments and days and weeks that are sort of jammed into that sometime after this. God's plan from a 30,000 foot looking down is event oriented. How do you know what this event is doing? By walking by faith, not by sight. By trusting in God and not leaning on your own understanding. By recognizing God's character. He's good. He's faithful. He's holy. He's just. And we walk and we walk. We don't know what these moments and these minutes are going to add up to, but you've sort of this event orient. Look at, look at verse 4 of Genesis 40. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for what? Some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, verse 5. Look at verse 8. Jo- Joseph's God awareness again. Do not interpretations belong to God? Here, here's Joseph seemingly forgotten in a foreign prison, but he knew God was present in the details. Don't interpretations belong to God? To the cupbearer in verse 14, look at what Joseph says. Only remember me when it is well with you. I mean, here's this decision, this appeal. It's not just like, well, if God wants to get me out, he will. There's, there's none of this kind of like evangelical fatalism. Oh, well, well, we'll just keep living like... No, he's making his appeal to one man who had the, the fair dream. Only remember me when it is well with you. Joseph knew that he was going to be, the cupbearer was going to be restored. And please do me the kindness to mention to me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. (laughs) The reality of life, there are situations sometimes we want to be out of. It doesn't mean God does not work in those details. Look at verse 23. I want you to see this. Yet the chief cupbearer, what? Did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. People let us down. People forget us. People overlook us. But God keeps His promises and makes us fruitful in affliction. Look at Genesis 41, verse 1. You see the, do you see the timing right there at the front? After two whole years... <laughs> That's a long time to stay in prison and be forgotten. Now Pharaoh has a dream. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Nice timing, right? We, we speak as men and women. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night and he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us a servant of the captain of the guard, when we told him, he interpreted our dream to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So Pharaoh calls Joseph. They quickly bring him out of the pit. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I've had a dream. There is no one who can interpret it. Later on, look at verse 16. Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This God-awareness, this praying without ceasing. Joseph continues to believe in God all the way down to verse 32. 
The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. This is a full, full circle, divine design. Uh, look, at, look at Genesis 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old. Remember when you were first introduced to him? How old was he? He was 17. He's now 30. This path took 13 years. But the famine won't reach its peak for another nine years. See, God's not done yet. But He is present and involved in the details. I want you to see this. We're almost done. Genesis chapter 41, verse 50. Before the year of famine came, so we would say this, the trial is still severe and pressing down. Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. I want you to notice the names. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, I want you to hear this, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. It's not that there wasn't hardship. The blessings that followed Joseph's faithfulness made him forget all his hardship. Look at the next boy. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Here's the eighth lesson. Even when we feel forgotten in a real or circumstantial prison, God is still in control. I'll I'll repeat all these at the end. And then finally, lesson nine, God transforms us through testing. And then tenth, a sovereign God intends good. That's probably my favorite lesson. A sovereign God intends good. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 say this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph's able to tell this to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me. They meant real, true, dark, heinous, cruel evil. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Until you can say that. Until you can believe that. Until you can move forward knowing that God meant it for good. No matter how dark and evil and sordid it was. Until you can say God is sovereign over all the details. And He means it for good. If you can't grasp that, you will remain in neutral. Or worse, you will become embittered and sidelined. Final verse, so Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I'm going to invite our music team forward this time while I actually read those 10 points again. Our sovereign God is not bound by parental failure or favoritism. Every detail, number two, is under God's sovereign control and therefore used for His purposes. His purposes cannot be frustrated by our actions and choices. Number three, transitions, unexpected moves, abrupt turns, and life changes are all part of God's leading in our necessary journey. 
Four, we can give thanks to God in all circumstances because God is working in the messy details of life. Five, God's plan is bigger than ours or others' failures. Six, God's presence compels us in temptation and trials. Seven, God keeps His promises. He does not forget even when others do. His plan will be accomplished in His time and no one can prevent it. Eight, God is still in control and caring even when we feel forgotten and in a prison. Nine, God transforms us through testing. He blesses us in affliction. And number ten, a sovereign God intends good. That is why we are going to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Because we need to be reminded of this. We need to exhort one another daily while it is called today. Please stand with me. And I will pray and thank God for His goodness, His character, His faithfulness. And then we will sing together. Let's pray.